the same advice I'd give to the students right here and now that are coming through their PhDs, that there's going to be a time in the future when the textbooks will be filled with stuff that is yet to be discovered. Somebody has to discover it. Why not you? Welcome everyone to another phenomenal, unparalleled edition of the Into the Impossible podcast featuring yours truly, Dr. Brian Keating, slowly emerging from the pandemic bunker in which I have dwelled, emerging only to check my shadow and to talk with genius guests like today's guest, Frank Close, an Order of the British Empire member. I think that make, makes him a knight. No, I'm not sure. It's, it's all very difficult what they do over there. He's a fellow of the Royal Society, a particle physicist, and emeritus professor of physics at the University of Oxford, author of a dozen books, including Half-Life, The Infinity Puzzle, and more. And this book is about an anomaly, a particle named after a person. No other basic particle of physics that we have is named after a person. And it's slightly ironic, as we discussed, because Higgs himself, Peter Higgs, who is knighted now, uh, hates the fact, or at least originally hated the fact that he got so much attention. In fact, on the day of the announcement when the Nobel Committee called to tell him he had won the prize, Higgs was off dining at a restaurant without a cell phone, so he could not be found, and that was very much by design. I found a Frank's biography incredibly interesting and wonderful for us to bring to you. So this is a controversial episode. This has a lot of uh, commentary from people on Twitter and on YouTube about the propriety of the prize being awarded to just two individuals. And I pressed Frank about that. He wasn't, you know, completely disassociated, maybe, you know, from the selection process. We get, we don't know. Maybe he did help select, maybe he didn't. Uh, that's kept confidential unless you're like me and publish it in a book. Uh, but, um, but in this case, he did uh, really kind of a thorough job documenting who he thought should have gotten it, why the experimentalist didn't get it, um, why my late great professor Jerry Goralnik or friend of the show, past guest Carl Hagen didn't get it. Uh, I don't know if I agree with all those, but, um, but of course, I'm always trying to respect my guest's perspective. So now I want you to sit back, relax, enjoy this voyage into the impossible in our Think Like a Nobel Prize winner sub-series that we do on this podcast. We also have a break-off podcast. That's all you care about. You can find that on iTunes and enjoy this trip into the impossible. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. Today is a day uh, that will live in infamy if we're listening to this on July 4th uh, or thereabouts. It is the 10th anniversary of the announcement of the discovery of the Higgs boson. And today we are joined by a renowned physicist an officer, I believe, at the British Empire, a fellow of the Royal Society, emeritus professor, Exeter College, Oxford, University of Oxford. Uh, and that is Frank Close, who's joining us all the way from Oxford to discuss his phenomenal new book. Frank, how are you doing today? Fine, thanks. You wrote this wonderful new book. It's called Elusive, How Peter Higgs Solved the Mystery of Mass. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the book. We're going to talk about Peter Higgs, the mystery behind them. We're going to take some audience questions. I remind folks, you can always submit questions to me on Twitter, Instagram, 
and on my YouTube channel in the community section. That's where I took a lot of questions uh, for Frank and I to discuss later. Uh, but we always begin with what you're never supposed to do, Frank, which is to judge a book by its cover. And we're gonna judge this book by its cover. So we'll show the cover of the book. It's called Elusive. And I want you to describe how you came up with the title, what the subtitle means, and what the cover design is meant to evoke in the mind of the reader. Well, the title Elusive actually has two meanings. It was 48 years between the original ideas that led to the discovery of the boson and its actual discovery. So the boson itself was very elusive. In the case of Peter Higgs, whose effectively biography this set out to be, though as we'll see, some things changed along the way, um, he also was elusive at many levels, in particular the fact that uh, by the time the boson was discovered in 2012, there was a lot of speculation that he might win the Nobel Prize that year, but clearly that was too soon because the 2012 prize was already, if you like, in the can. But the intense media reaction showed him what it would really be like if and when the prize came his way. And the following year, there was a huge amount of speculation that he was going to win it. In fact, so much so, I don't think bookmakers would have taken any wages on it. Um, and uh, he disappeared on the day of the announcement. Um, he went off to have lunch at his favorite seafood bar about three miles away uh, from his home in Edinburgh and didn't tell his colleagues at all where he had gone. Hmm. So the Swedish Academy, who conventionally contact the winners to alert them uh, before the public announcement is made at midday, um, they couldn't find him. And as a result, the whole announcement was delayed for half an hour until they decided to go ahead anyway. Uh, so he, he did a disappearing act on the big day, if you like. Um, and the story is, which he confirmed, that uh, after lunch, I mean, he didn't know anything at all about this, where he was. And he then uh, came back home. He went to an art gallery to take up some more time. And a lady in a car stopped and said, Peter, congratulations on the award. And he said, what award? I mean, he was joking. He knew what he was about, obviously. Um, why he was so elusive is one of the questions which one might want to think about. But that's the reason for the title, both of them. <laughs> and when I think about, you know, Peter Higgs, it's, it's almost impossible not to decouple kind of the mystique from the man. Um, I might have called it, you know, uh, inscrutable, except for the fact that your title is a better, uh, a better play on words, because of course, the discovery of the Higgs boson eluded experimentalists uh, for, you know, five decades, uh, potentially not uh, being in, very much in the can at all, bookmakers. Uh, but I wonder, you know, from the demeanor that he's known to have and the kind of mystique around this discovery, which is inscrutable in itself to describe, you have a, a, a gift as you did in your previous book on antimatter uh, for describing very complex subjects in very uh, easy to understand, but not simplified, not dumbed down. I always hate that pejorative. Uh, oh, you're good at dumbing it down for no, I don't think I'm dumb it down. As Feynman said, you know, um, you should be able to explain it to your grandmother. But he also said when he when he won the Nobel Prize, a reporter asked him, um, you know, what did you win the Nobel Prize for? And then Feynman said, if I could explain it to you, pal, 
it wouldn't be worth a Nobel Prize. So let's not take these guys too seriously. But in the case of Higgs, <laughs> do you think that his inscrutable nature kind of allowed people to project onto him whatever they wanted? Quite unlike Stephen Hawking, who you talk about in the book, and we'll get to Hawking and my late great friend uh, Freeman Dyson later on. But do you think his inscrutable character allows you to basically project onto him, you know, this this godlike characteristic that he kind of took on and he least of all seemed to want it. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Well, it's certainly true the last bit, as you said, that he least of all seemed to want it. Um, when you read Elusive, uh, you will see that uh, the idea of him being a godlike character is not really one that I present. Um, I mean, we're not talking Stephen Weinberg here. We're not talking Stephen Hawking. People who did a lot of frontier work in their career uh, over many decades. In the case of Higgs, uh, as he said to his student back in 1964, a student uh, came back from summer vacation, found a note from Higgs on his desk which said, this summer I had the only really good idea I've ever had. I mean, to be fair, how many of us could say we had a good idea anyway? But uh, And indeed, that was the only thing in his physics career that he did, and almost literally so, in the sense that I think he wrote maybe a dozen papers in his career, um, of which uh, the early ones were more on molecular biology, which is where he started off uh, as a student, uh, ironically, working just down the corridor from Rosalind Franklin, who right. uh, found dis discovering the structure of DNA. And he wrote a paper which actually was quite significant in that field, along with two collaborators. That was the only time in his whole life that he wrote a paper with anybody else. Mm. So he wrote a dozen papers all by himself. And of that dozen papers, all but three had no impact at all, almost literally. Well, that's Slight exaggeration. One, one of them had uh, some interest in, in the quantum gravity community, but but by and large, um, they they made no impact. Of course, three of them were, and that is what he is known for. Um, so he is an elusive person at, at many levels. Um, what was the start of the question you were saying about him that you wanted to know? Well, uh, I think. I think you basically answered it. I mean, his inscrutable characteristics, you know, made him kind of a blank, a tabula rasa for those of us to project this this onto him. Which oh, yes, has... that's right. It was, you're saying, you know, how did so much get projected on him? I mean, that's an interesting question. Um, I can only ask, answer it really from the British side. Um, I mean, that, that at least I can understand. Uh, around 1980, when the momentum to build what became the Large Hadron Collider uh, was certainly growing in the scientific community. And after the superconducting super collider at Texas got uh, stopped effectively by Congress, uh, the, the LHC, if it were to be built, it would become the only game in town. 
And this required, of course, the CERN member states to agree that this was an expenditure worth doing. And in those days in the UK, the government was very, well, not, not necessarily anti-science, but they were really questioning value for money. Mm. And the idea of Britain being involved in what eventually amounted to effectively the equivalent of $10 billion worth of expenditure, um, although it's got to be shared between like 15 member states and more, uh, was a thing you know, that gave them pause. And there was a serious possibility that Britain would even withdraw from CERN. Mm. And so the scientific community, not surprisingly, you know, were very concerned about this. Um, and then a couple of things happened. Uh, one thing, actually, was Leon Lederman writing his book called The God Particle, which captured media attention. And the media became interested because of, of that aspect of things. In the UK, uh, the fortunate thing that happened was that the Minister of Science, a man called William Waldegrave, um, perhaps unusually for politicians who in Britain tend to not be very scientifically cogent, um, he issued a challenge to the scientific community to say, look, um, I've heard about this Higgs boson, what's it all about? I, I should just say, incidentally, that Peter Higgs grew up in Bristol, which happened to be where Waldegrave's uh, constituency in Parliament was. So there was a, a link there. So he issued a challenge to the community to say, if you could describe the Higgs boson on a single sheet of paper, uh, it might help me uh, make the case in, in government for, for funding of this. So um, I was one of the many people who entered this competition. I didn't win it. Um, but I, at the start of it, put something similar to what you said at the start. I said that uh, you know, Feynman had made this remark that uh, I think it was, if you can describe the Nobel Prize in 30 seconds, it's not worth a Nobel Prize. So I said, you know, being asked to describe profound concepts on a single sheet of paper um, reminds me of Feynman's challenge, though I noticed you didn't specify the font size. <laughs> so, um, but I said to him, however, I will take up your challenge on condition that you will do the same thing for me with regards to the Maastricht Treaty. Now, most of your listeners will not know what I'm talking about there, but these are the days when Britain was uh, uh, contemplating joining the European Union, which we've now disastrously left, um, and the Maastricht Treaty was a huge, incomprehensible document uh, that all the, the, with all the legalese in, in it. Anyway, Waldegrave later said to me very kindly, we neither won each other's challenge, I think was how he put it. But so Higgs became sort of known by name, at least uh, through that competition in part. Uh, the media picked up that something was going on and uh, came and interviewed him. And two things I think became clear. One was that although uh, he was very good at lecturing to students in a research environment, for example, or, or, or in, in university lectures, uh, he was not the sort of person who easily would stand up and present things in, in, in a public forum. Um, and so uh, the idea developed to have him sort of helped in a way. Um, mm. That's how I got involved later, which was um, that uh, the idea was that I would go on stage with him and interview him, if, if you like, help him bring the story out. Yeah. Um, and we did half a dozen of those over a period of uh, two or three years, which actually spanned the, uh, the time before the boson was discovered. <clears throat> Then I happened to be with him 
immediately before the announcement at CERN. Then I interviewed him again a month or so afterwards uh, and a year afterwards. So through this series of interviews, I began to get a sense of how he personally had felt uh, about the original idea, what then became of it, waiting 48 years to see the whole thing happen uh, and so forth. Mm. and at some point along this route, I thought, you know, this is something that at some point I should write about because I'm, I'm living through history. And uh, Peter Higgs is not the sort of person easily who would present it himself. And this is the sort of thing that I've always enjoyed doing. So that's probably when the idea became, uh, grew up. Right. But the question that stuck with me, which really is the question you opened at the start, why was it that Higgs became such a sort of well-known character and I think at a certain level, it's probably just the the mundane nature of his name. I mean, if it had been Weinberg or Einstein or Rutherford, that's the sort of names that scientists have. Uh, but Higgs is a sort of name in Britain. It's like 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 a yeoman, a, a person of the earth, almost like uh, symbolizes the common person. Right. And I, I'm sure that at a psychological level, you know, if somebody called Higgs can do this, so can you, that sort mm-hmm. of feeling. So and, a man of people in that strange way. And you point out, although we had some uh, Twitter kind of uh, controversy, which is not at all rare, uh, that it's the only particle named after a person. And then someone said, well, no, boson comes from uh, the physicist, great Indian physicist Bose. And so it's not really only anyway, uh, we we don't have to get into that, but one but, thing. Uh, well, uh, to be fair, I think the the, the the statement that was made, if this is in the publicity handout, it's the only single particle name for a person. I mean, bosons are collective, as I say, like penguins. The more, the merrier. Um, <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I, I often talk about, you know, my favorite particle uh, is is not the proton or the neutron; it's the crouton. Uh, but also, I was reminded of the pion, which also is a delicious particle. Uh, But you point out in this book that Hawking was very doubtful. And he, of course, made a $100 wager, which your fellow Oxfordian, is that how you say it, Frank? Oxfordian? Or Oxonian? Oxonian. uh, Sir Roger Penrose, uh, multi-time guest on the podcast, fellow Nobel Prize winner with Peter Higgs. Uh, He told me the safest thing in your life to do is to make a bet with Stephen Hawking, because no matter what, uh, you would either be right the first time or give him enough time and Stephen would change his mind. Uh, Stephen made a bet and you describe it uh, in such uh, wonderful prose. This this book is a book written for physicists as well as non-physicists. And I say it's written for physicists because you, for the first time in really my memory, you dissect um, three papers at great length uh, not, not in the audio book, which I listened to, which has this mellifluous voice uh, read by a wonderful reader, not not Frank, although you have a wonderful voice too, Frank. But, but at any rate, um, the audio book is lovely, but the audio book doesn't cover the, uh, the treatment of the papers that Ooh. Higgs wrote, the two papers, famous papers that Higgs wrote, and I believe another one by Ginsburg. And uh, it was kind of a precursor about the uh, Nambu goes on uh, Goldstone boson. We'll get to that all, but this is all to say that Frank uh, gives plenty of a uh, red meat. I shouldn't say that uh, because I know there's a lot of vegan. Uh, there's plenty of, of rich tofu to digest for physicists. Because what you do is you walk the reader through 
the papers that led to this prize. And I think very few, although with the exception of Oxonian uh, Sir Roger Penrose, he basically won his Nobel Prize for this his wonderful paper on the on the properties of black holes with his uh, characteristic diagrams and, and so forth, uh, as well as a lifetime of contributions to mathematical physics. But this is all to say that this is a book for scientists too. And, and my audience is the most brilliant in the known universe. And so for those of you who are technically minded, you'll really enjoy the pedagogical approach that Professor Close does provide to dissect these monumental papers in a way that is satisfying, understandable to the expert. This is not really written, the, the appendices are not written for the lay audience. The rest of the 260 pages or so are written for the lay audience. And it is a delight to read. It starts with Peter's early years, goes through his biology training. You meet all these people that have won and lost Nobel Prizes like Rosalind Franklin. But you also come to a section where he's interacting with the first guest ever on the podcast, uh, which was Freeman Dyson. And Freeman was a great friend. He used to spend his summers here in La Jolla, or his winters here in La Jolla. Uh, God knows you wouldn't want to leave uh, Princeton uh, in, the, in the middle of the glorious summer. But, uh, but there's a chapter where you go into uh, a really um, kind of pivotal moment in, in Peter's life, in, in Peter Higgs' life where he meets with Freeman and he gets this invitation to travel up the coast from North Carolina, I believe, Bryce DeWitt to uh, all the way up to the Institute for Advanced Study. Talk about the impact of Freeman Dyson. I miss him terribly and I know that you knew him, but uh, talk about the impact of that chance encounter with a peer, but really someone who is regarded as almost otherworldly and not just for his Dyson spheres. Talk about the import of uh, Freeman Dyson on the Higgs story. Well, I'll just start actually by saying the, the first time that I met Freeman Dyson, um, it was in the days when he had written that wonderful book called Disturbing the Universe. Mm. Um, and he and I met in Adelaide, Australia, where we had gone as part of celebrations for the centenary of Bragg the Younger being made professor. Um, and he and I and, and Paul Davis uh, gave three popular talks on three successive days. I happened to be the first day. Um, Paul II and Freeman Dyson III. And we gave these talks in a huge hall, um, which probably could have held 500 people. So, you know, my talk, I was very proud when I saw maybe three or 400 people there, and Paul Davis likewise. But when Freeman came to give his talk, not only was the hall completely full, but the corridors were filled with students all trying to get in. And it turned out, in part, I mean, obviously this is in part because it was Freeman Dyson, but the university had, they had made a, a typo in the title of his talk, and it had been put out as disturbing the university. <laughs> Which he would also do on occasion. Yeah, so, I mean, but, but to be fair, you know, Freeman was a revolutionary thinker. But yes, he was. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so um, this, uh, where Freeman enters this story, I suppose it is in two parts, though he he doesn't appear in the first part. I mean, he, in 1947, I guess it was, was key, in my opinion, to really identifying why it was possible to renormalize that's the big word for make viable a, a, a quantum theory of quantum electrodynamics, uh, for which he never shared in, in the prize, which is one of the great missing prizes. Um, and along the way, um, at that time, um, Schwinger, who did share one of the prizes, uh, 
convinced everybody that a key part of the renormalization viability process was that photons, the carrier of electromagnetic forces, have no mass. We put that on one side, we can come back to that later. Um, so Freeman was in there in the start. Um, by 1960s, he was at the Institute in Princeton. And um, Peter Higgs, the, 1964 is the year that everybody thinks was the year when it all happened. And that is indeed the, the time when Higgs and Broughton Anglaire and Goralnik Hagen and Kibble and, and others were sort of stumbling on what became known as the what I call the mass mechanism, right. not the Higgs mechanism, the mass mechanism. Mm -hmm. um, but it was two years later in 1966, where, in my judgment, the key paper, the one that Higgs wrote, in which it included the what's now called the Higgs boson, and in particular gave the quantum amplitudes for its decay into various processes, which turned out to be key to its eventual discovery. He wrote that while he was on sabbatical at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. And um, he, he worked on that. Uh, I, I think it's fair to say, and probably we can discuss this also, I don't think, I mean, as of 1964, apart from a handful of people, nobody right. took much notice at all right. about this. Um, so we move on to 1966. And uh, what Peter told me uh, was that um, he was worried. I mean, people, I think, probably among this group of small group of experts, questions about how solid the arguments really were and so forth. There were subtle questions of which gauge you did the calculations in and so forth. Right. And so Higgs planned to write uh, a strong mathematical big paper which would establish the theoretical foundations of the whole structure and that's what he set out to do in chapel hill um, and in the course of that and this is the biggest surprise that i probably had in the whole of the research of, the, of this is that he said that he, he set out to answer all these criticisms he produced a very mathematical manuscript about gauge invariance and how it works in different ways, um, and then thought that this is going to be very impenetrable. And so he thought he ought to add some sort of simple pedagogic examples. And so section three in that paper, which discusses the decays of the scalar boson, the massive scalar boson, which I, I'll call the Higgs boson here, in particular into two massive vector bosons, such as we now know the W and Z bosons are, but they were not known at that time. Um, he included that in the paper. And by chance, that 50 years later turns out to be key, a fact which he was totally unprepared for and unaware of. But anyway, he, he wrote the paper um, and... Uh, uh, Freeman Dyson was on the mailing list. He, Peter Higgs was visiting Bryce DeWitt's group in North Carolina, which really specialised in quantum gravity. Right. Uh, Higgs was, had been interested in gravity. That's why he'd been invited by DeWitt to visit. But by the time of 66 came round, Higgs had got interests in these things. So Bryce DeWitt's mailing list sends out preprints, and Freeman Dyson, who's interested in everything, uh, read this. And said to, to Peter, if you're up in the Northeast, come by the Institute. And uh, so 
that moment, Higgs said to me, that was the first indication that I had that what I was doing was of interest. Because when, I mean, Dyson is one of the, or was one of the sharpest and clearest sounding boards of what is a good idea. And I think, it, to be fair, were Dyson to suddenly call me up to the Institute that way, I'd think, ah, so what I am doing has some interest. So that was the first clue for, for Higgs, and he went up there. And the actual occasion was interesting because uh, the way it worked at Princeton was that um, the although the people at the Institute had no formal responsibilities for teaching or, or, or so forth, they were, if you like, left their own devices. Nonetheless, they had to satisfy their peers that what they were doing was worthwhile, and they had what they called the shotgun seminar. So uh, the invited speaker, on this case Higgs, would give their seminar after tea, uh, but before tea, whoever was the unlucky winner of the unlucky dip and said, it's your turn this week, would give a spontaneous uh, talk. And on this particular occasion, it happened to be Friedman Dyson who uh, gave that talk, which was actually about the structure of matter and subtle questions. And we're talking 1966 here. Uh, you know, what's the difference between a solid and a gas or a solid and a liquid and, and so forth and phase transitions? Um, and so then they came to the tea break uh, and Peter's going to give the talk afterwards with all these distinguished people there. And during the tea break, somebody comes up to him who's read a paper uh, saying, oh, I think uh, you're, you're wrong. You know, there's three very distinguished people have pointed out a big error in your work, you know, which was not the thing you want to hear when you're going to give a seminar. But anyway, it turned out uh, during the talk that he convinced the audience and, uh, and Freeman Dyson was, uh, I think, very important for providing that first piece of confidence that this was something that meant something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and all young scientists need that kind of, um, you know, recognition or uh, even just encouragement from colleagues, from mentors and, and friends. Uh, I was struck kind of by the lack of in um, sort of, you know, including his, you know, sort of, I don't want to say reclusiveness, I think that gives a, a negative connotation, but the inscrutable nature of him. I don't recall any real discussions of his students or his academic family lineage, his, his ancestry, uh, either before or after. Um, was he known as a, as a teacher? I know you you talk a lot about in the book how he was kind of this um, really just not disheveled, but but a little bit out of place talking with journalists and and initially trying to do it, give a talk to a public or press audience and, and basically launching into a physics lecture. Um, what was he like as a teacher? Did he have students? Does he have students? Um, what was he like as an educator? I, I'm told uh, the students loved him. He was a great pedagogue. I mean, basically, he in the, I mean, he's 93 now, so he's no longer... Uh, active at all, uh, but he was, I would think, um, to say caricature is not not the fair description. But but he symbolised what you might call the classical old English pedagogue scholar, um, who would spend their life studying books and then lecturing about them. Um, in and that was certainly the style. Um, with regards to students. Uh, that there was one particular student that he had, David Wallace, who I mentioned in the book, who is actually an exact contemporary of mine. Um, he and well, David was an undergraduate student at Edinburgh University, where Peter happened to be. I was an undergraduate student 
in St Andrews, which is also in Scotland. And at the end of my time, um, I fortunately won a scholarship to go to Oxford to do my PhD. And had David Wallace gone in for that scholarship, he would have gone to Oxford, not me, and the whole of the world would have been different. But there we are. David stayed at Edinburgh. And he, be, he later became a very distinguished physicist in condensed matter in his own right. Um, but he was a student of Peter Higgs. And we're now talking uh, his first year, 1967 to 8, I guess. Um, and uh, in the first year, Peter's style, as in many places, was to give prospective research students a reading list to, to go away and, and look for. So David recalled how he was in the library and he saw a paper by Steven Weinberg. Now, this was the paper that Weinberg wrote in 1967 called A Model of Leptons, in which he, to some degree, uh, independently rediscovered what became the SU2 cross U1 standard model with two massive bosons, the W and the Z in there. And he was aware of the uh, the, the mass mechanism because he had talked to Peter Higgs uh, in a mutual visit to Brookhaven the, the year before. Um, and Wallace saw this paper and he was very excited by it because he noticed that uh, Peter Higgs was prominently cited in this and it all seemed to be built around something that Peter Higgs had done. Um, and at the end of this paper, Weinberg speculated that uh, using this mass mechanism it might be possible to make a viable theory of what we now call quantum flavor dynamics. Um, now, Wallace then ran upstairs and showed this paper to Peter Higgs and said, this looks a great problem to work on to uh, prove whether or not this model is indeed renormalizable. And, and Higgs basically um, thought this was not a good idea. And I think that that was a wise judgment. And D David actually now uh, agrees with that. Because look historically what actually happened. Stephen Weinberg gave a similar problem. Uh, Weinberg told me this when I was researching the Infinity Puzzle about 12 years ago. He gave to a problem the problem to a student uh, to test the renormalizability. Uh, and after a period of time, it became clear this was not going to be feasible. The student just couldn't get through it. And Weinberg said to me that he also was never able to do it uh, because the techniques that eventually were used were called, he was not, not happy with. So if you have something that Weinberg himself was not able to do, and indeed was only eventually done by Herod Toft uh, in a tour de force in his thesis in 71, in part building upon the fact that Teeny Veltman had built already a huge infrastructure. Um, I think it was just as well that David Wallace didn't set out to try and prove the renormalizability uh, of this theory. So that was one of Higgs's probably, well, Higgs said that that was the smartest student that came through Edinburgh in the whole of his time there. And he felt that even somebody like that, it would not have been a good idea to give that as a problem. Yeah, that's uh, kind of, you judge your, your students, you know, maybe early on when they are naive and new to the subject, although I guess in the US, in the US it's different than the way things are in the UK. Uh, but you know, it's it does seem like he's he has had this great influence, and and yet, like Feynman, who also famously turned down accolades and honors, uh, such as uh, he never would accept Feynman would never accept a 
an honorary degree because he felt that demeaned the uh, prestige and the and the the fact that people who had actually earned the degree earned it. And so uh, Peter turned down knighthood at least once, right? Um, as you talk about, and you know, I wonder he really seems to be, you know, unlike uh, uh, unlike many people maybe even yours truly uh, aspired to it at one point in my career, uh, almost obsessed about it. Um, now that maybe the bloom is off the rose somewhat for me, having, having studied it in more detail, but um, with him, do you think, you know, uh, all the legend, all the lore you recount in the book, him not being available for the phone call, going to a seaside restaurant and, uh, and, and, and as you discussed, do you think that, you know, ultimately, this uh this decades-long quest do you think that ultimately you know where do you feel like the Nobel prize actually figured into his thinking his motivation if at all uh, I, I don't think there was any motivation for Nobel prize when he did what he did um the analogy that I give to what he actually did was like Gary Player the famous occasion when Supposedly, Gary Player, after holding this almost impossible putt on the golf course, <laughs> somebody supposedly said, oh, that was lucky, Gary. And Gary says, yes, and the more I practice, the luckier I become. I mean, in, in the case of, of Higgs, when you look back over this whole saga and career, um, you could say he was lucky. Um, well, yes, he, he was, but it's more than just luck. You have to be ready. I mean, being in the right place at the right time is lucky, but you have to be able to take advantage of it. And in his particular case, um, to draw the Gary Player analogy, he had been doing the work for the previous two or three years. He had really been trying to understand really what's going on with this business called gauge invariance and the link, if any, that it had to the photon being massless or, or not. Um, and so by the time you know, 64 wound round, he probably... Uh, understood that as deeply as anybody, probably other than Julian Schwinger, who had started the whole whole saga. So he was in the right position by chance when a paper by Walter Gilbert uh, came uh, through the mails or in the in in the in the Fizrev, um, which. Uh, uh, said it was impossible to get around. There was a technical blockage in theory called the Goldstone theorem, but um, it was possible to get around this technical. It would. It was possible to get around this technical blockage in a non-relativistic world because of certain technical features. But those technical features were not present in a relativistic world, and therefore it would not be possible to do it. And Higgs, because of the reading he'd been doing, knew a particular example in the relativistic world which contradicted Gilbert's statement. And so now it was a matter of really understanding what Gilbert was talking about because he had a counterexample to this so that he could then write the first paper to show that uh, there was potentially a way through this blockage. And so he was in the right place at the right time and well prepared. Um, so that was where the luck came in, if, the, if, if that was lucky. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, when I think about, uh, you know, this, this, you know, contribution, I was reminded, and I think you might have even mentioned it at one point in the book, um, you know, there was a quote by Alan Sandage back in the 60s and 70s about cosmology as a search for two numbers, uh, namely the Hubble constant and the deceleration constant, what they thought was a deceleration constant then discovered by past into the impossible guest Brian Schmidt and Adam Reese 
along with Saul Perlmutter, winners of the 2011 Nobel Prize, to be a negative deceleration, aka acceleration. Uh, but but the quip by Sandage of the search for two numbers um, kind of echoes in this book is the search for one number, which is the the um, the the mass of the Higgs. And can you explain why a heavier particle like the uh, w and z uh, sorry like the top quark and, and other uh, elementary particles why were those discovered earlier prior to the higgs is there a reason that the lay audience can contemplate and understand why that occurred out of order sort of in in terms of energy scales well um i mean going back to the, the six, 64 when it all begins um it's probably sobering to recall how relatively primitive particle physics was at that time. Um, I mean, the, the biggest accelerator uh, in the world was, was well, in the electron world, was probably at Stanford in California, a two-mile-long linear accelerator, which was powerful enough to probe inside the proton and reveal the quarks. Uh, the quarks, incidentally, were first proposed in 1964. It was a big, big year, 64. Yeah. I think the Big Bang theory was sort of established in 64 as well. Um, so uh, in Brookhaven uh, and CERN, uh, they had um, the largest proton accelerators, which were a few hundred meters probably in, uh, in diameter. Um, and the energy scale they could reach was probably a few tens of GeV. The most massive particle that was known at the time was maybe no more than twice the mass of the proton to, to, to GeV. So into this scenario, you have the first emergence of ideas that there might be things which we now call W and Z bosons, the carriers of the, the weak force, whose masses were calculated theoretically to be of the order of 80 or 90. GV. Uh, and the first person really to get to that stage was uh, Shelley Glashow in a paper in 1961, which was by and large ignored for a couple of reasons. From the experimentalist point of view, who was going to be interested in producing particles of 80 or 90 GV? I mean, they were clearly a theorist's fantasy. You don't have things 40, 50 times heavier than anything we can do at the present time. From the theorist's point of view, they thought, well, this is a waste of time because this theory is all very well, but it can't work. And it can't work because we know from Schwinger and Dyson and all that renormalization stuff that the reason why quantum electrodynamics is viable is because the photon has no mass. And the theory of the weak force would be complete nonsense because for that, the W and Z have a mass. Therefore, what's the point? Um, but we now know, of course, because of the mass mechanism, that you can get around that. But that was still for the future. So the W and Z, um, I think the belief that we're on the right track came in 71. I mentioned how Toft and Veltman showed that thanks to the mass mechanism is indeed possible to create a viable theory. You can start off pretending the W and Z have got no mass, like a photon, use the mass mechanism, they get the mass, but everything works nicely. At which point people realize there may be something to this. And that is what inspired in particular Carlo Rubia, who was uh, then a senior scientist at CERN and Harvard, and later became DG at CERN, to propose converting one of the big proton accelerators to a collider of protons and antiprotons. Because in the annihilation of a proton and its antimatter counterpart, 
there could be enough energy that if you were lucky, you could produce W or Z bosons. And in 83, 84, 1983-84, uh, the W and Z were found with just the right masses. So now it was clear that definitely we were on the right track. And 80 and 90 GeV was still huge, but it was now within range. That then gave enough confidence to build at CERN the large electron-positron LEP collider, which was the 27-kilometer ring uh, with electrons going one way, positrons the other, annihilated head-on, mm -hmm. so that they produce in a small region of space 90 GeV of energy. And if you're lucky, that will occasionally materialize as a 90 GeV massive Z. And that way, you're able to study this. I think 10 million Zs were produced over the next decade or so. And by measuring their properties very precisely, things began to be noticed. First of all, that the theory worked because the properties were described perfectly at about 1%. But once you got more precise, you started noticing subtle deviations. Now, at that time, um, the quarks that have been discovered, um, five of what we now know, six quarks were known. The bottom quark with a mass of only four GeV was the heaviest they're known. People suspected that there needed to be a sixth quark to complete the pattern called the top quark. And the deviations in the properties of the Z showed by quantum field theory that the top quark is there affecting things in the background, if you like, because of quantum uncertainty. And the deviations could be understood if the top quark was somewhere 150 to 200 GV in mass. At Fermilab, they then in the 90s um, had the biggest uh, proton accelerator in the world by then, which was approaching an energy of up to about a TeV, a thousand GeV, um, about one tenth of the size of the present Large Hadron Collider. And in those experiments, they were able to produce the top quark and found its mass, what is it, 185 or something like that. You could then put this determined mass back into the calculations and you found that the part of one in a thousand or so, there was still a deviation, which was the first clue that there's a Higgs out there probably with a mass somewhere between 110 and 130. Um, and so that is what led to the Large Hadron Collider at which the, the particles eventually found at 125, bang in. So along the story, it's really been quantum field theory and quantum uncertainty all the time that you're able always to look across the horizon of energy to see what lies beyond thanks to quantum uncertainty. But then you need a bigger energy source to be able to actually get there and see the thing for real. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, if we look at the, you know, discovery, and I think, you know, now we should probably pivot to the, you know, the mastodon in the room, as as Roger likes to say, you know, which is the, the Nobel Prize itself and why it's caused so much, you know, controversy on one hand and, um, and elation on the other hand. But I think let's start with, you know, the search itself before we pivot to issues of credit and et cetera. And you're very careful in the book to talk about the, the mass mechanism and, and, and really Peter himself, you know, for a long time was, was very much, um, you know, kind of, I wouldn't say embarrassed, but he, he didn't like the name, you know, really being associated with him. And he even referred to it by this ungainly, 
you know, seven letter nickname, including my late great uh, professor at Brown University, Jerry Gorelnik, and, uh, and, and his colleagues and past guest Carl Hagen on the podcast, uh, including their initials. But let's let's talk a little bit about the experimentalists who were so key to this. And the fact that none of them really participated in the in the Nobel Prize itself. Some felt that was a slight, especially since there was an open quote unquote slot uh, in the Nobel Prize list of three winners, which is uh, I've talked about is one of the uh, the second most cruel aspect of the Nobel Prize, perhaps, but uh, second only to the posthumous elimination of, of Nobel Prize winners. But anyway, talk about what was the reaction? I mean, you were at CERN, you, you, you participated in many of the events surrounding it. Um, and subsequent to it, and now we're at the 10th anniversary, as we say, July 4th, 2022 is 10th anniversary of the announcement. Talk about the, the you know, kind of, uh, the I don't want to say lack of recognition, obviously it was key, but but how did the inter- uh, the experimentalists take it? I, I've heard privately that some were very much miffed and, you know, they don't want to go on the record because of course, you know, it's, it's a, such a nice story as it is. Uh, but talk about the impact of the experimentalists not really receiving the recognition that people like Rubia, who you talk about in the book, received, you know, uniquely so. Uh, and it's been 10 years, probably not going to happen, right? So talk about that that impact on experimental physics in, in general and why there was this dichotomy, perhaps. Well, I mean, if you're asking about should the experimentalists have shared the Nobel Prize or what have you? I mean, that's a question you have to ask the Nobel Committee as to why they made the decisions that they made. They won't take my um, phone calls anymore. You know? <laughs> oh, I see. Okay. I mean, I, I can tell you what I uh, suggested back in 2012 when the boson had finally been discovered. Um, and there was already the question about uh, uh, where's the Nobel Prize going to go? And there already seemed to be a general sort of agreement, well, because they discovered Higgs's boson, then Higgs is going to be in there and there are three places and where's it all going to go and so forth. Um, And by that stage, Robert Brout, who was one of the co-discoverers of the mechanism with Anglaire, had died. Um, And so there was sort of, on the theory side of the question, well, there's two parts to this. The experimental discovery, or even further back, the design and construction of the machine. So there's an engineering issue, there's a physics experiment issue, and there's a theoretical issue. Um, I uh, argued on the theory side that uh, if it was going to go to theorists, um, I saw an opportunity here that Anglair and Brout were the first people to publish the mass mechanism, and Anglair was the only survivor there. Then Higgs was the only person among all of these who drew any attention to a massive boson and by accident maybe had given the indication of how to identify it where it produced, which left one spot. And I argued that that should go to Tom Kibble for two reasons. One, I mean, he was the third party on a paper that wrote with Gorelnik and Hagen, which was published two months after this. So, I mean, yes, they did this independently, but the bad luck is, you know, you don't get prizes for coming in second. That's the the, the regrettable reality. Uh, But he'd been involved with that. But in my mind, I think the most singular theory contribution in the whole was actually in 1967 in a paper that Tom Kibble wrote on his own. 
which showed how to keep the photon massless while giving masses to these other particles. And that might sound a bit trite, but it's not. But up to that stage, what all of the work had been doing was highly theoretical. It was showing how to make a mass mechanism in principle. And Higgs had shown that if nature uses this, the test is that there will be this boson with certain characters. But precisely how nature used this and where and how to build a theory it was Kibble in 67 who showed how to do that. And it was Kibble's paper that stimulated Steven Weinberg to write his model of leptons. And he cites Kibble very prominently in that. I also know that Kibble also inspired Salam to the importance of this whole business, which explains why it was when I was a student, before I knew all about this stuff and it was still very fresh, Salam always referred to it as the Higgs-Kibble mechanism. Hmm. So Kibble, I think, was singular. So I wanted him to be the third of that. And I, um, I was at a dinner on Kibble's 80th birthday. And um, I think, um, I can't remember who it was, but somebody from the, the Physics Nobel Committee was at that, that din. And, uh, and he had read the Infinity Puzzle book. And he said to me, um, well, Frank, he said, uh, how do you think we should deal with this? And so I said, uh, well, I said, I've, I've made a lot of arguments in my book. Is I have read your book from cover to cover. I thought, well, no pressure there. Then. Yeah. <laughs> I, I then said, I said, look, I said, this is my solution. Um, there's just been announced um, a new, I think it's called the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering, which has designs on being an engineering analogue in stature of the Nobel Prize. And I said, I think the Queen Elizabeth Prize should be awarded to you know, Lynn Evans on whoever on behalf of the, the actual facility, the, the machine that they have built. The physics prize should be awarded in some combination to the experiments and, and or, or CERN for the discovery that they've made. And that Anglaire as the survivor, Higgs and Kibble should be awarded the prize for chemistry. Um, and that wasn't a facetious remark because my regard is that the application of everything they did really explains why we have structure and indeed rutherford got the prize for chemistry so anyway uh, the nobel guy said to me if that happens frank i will nominate you for the peace prize <laughs> uh, so there's no shortage of controversy you know surrounding any nobel prize but i think in this case because there were so many you know that rightfully could have claimed you know, paternity for it, uh, and also because Higgs seemed to shy away from it, uh, that, you know, my, as I said, my late great teacher, Jerry Gorelnik, who with Hagen and, and Kibble were were intimately involved and did uh, actually have a, a massless boson that later became, uh, you know, swallowed up and, and did take on mass. I think, you know, there, there, is rightfully kind of you know this this claim and and I of course now feel like the Nobel Prize does almost more harm than good but maybe not quite uh, don't tell the twelve Nobel Prize winners that have been on but, well, uh, but can I, let, let me just intersect I mean I, I'm not sure there is really any big controversy over having made the decision to award it to theorists um, I think I understand why it was awarded the way it was but the fact that the third spot was left blank, that Kibble didn't include the award, was actually probably a profound recognition 
that although Robert Brout was now dead and you can't award prizes posthumously, he was recognised. In fact, he was mentioned several times in the oration at Stockholm. So I, I sort of feel that he was there in absentia as the third place. Right. Um, but beyond that, I mean, who else in theory are you realistically expecting that it should go to within a constraint of three people? And with all due respect to Ralnick Hagen and even Tom Kibble, um, there isn't anybody else. Uh, there's two Russian guys whose name for the moment escapes me, who were students. Um, was it Polyarkov and Migdal, was it? Right, that right. Uh, actually had discovered the mass mechanism in Russia uh, back in 63 and had been talked out of it by senior professors. <laughs> um, and indeed, Jeffrey Goldstone, yeah. whose paper on the massless boson problem is what stimulated the whole business, um, and the solution of the whole business, of course, was you add Maxwell's equations in, include electromagnetism. Well, uh, Jeffrey had also done that back in 61, I would guess we're talking roughly now. Yeah. And so I think, well, as you, as you are very much aware, this whole story, I think, really begins somewhere around 6061 in Harvard, where Schwinger was having a change of heart that back in 47, he had proved that massless photons and gauge invariants somehow go together, but he had never been able to prove it totally. And he was beginning to suspect it wasn't in general true. And of course, we now know that it isn't in general true. Now, when I look back, I mean, through Jerry Goralnik's history, that he was very intimately linked with Gil. In fact, was Gilbert his supervisor? I think so. If I, if okay. I... Well, I mean, it was clear that. Um, there must have been talk going on, you know, in, in the in the coffee room at uh, at Harvard about um, massive could you could photons have mass and so forth. Yeah. Because I know around that time Gilbert wrote a paper looking at what might happen when photons interacted with other particles. And I think if I re recall Goralnik's memorandum, um, there was some sort of mention of that in his work, which got him started in the, in that direction. Oh, certainly, yeah. Jeffrey Goldstone had told me when I was researching Infinity Puzzle, and I mentioned it in, in, in Elusive, um, that he also, when he wrote his, what, what the work that he did led to the Goldstone boson, he also included uh, electromagnetism and found that it gave a mass to the photon. And he mentioned this to Schwinger. And in Goldstone's memory, Schwinger's reaction was something like, well, that's sort of obvious. Um, now, it's certainly true that around that time, Schwinger wrote a paper where it was, he was clearly questioning whether his belief that gauge invariance and massless photons was absolute. But it wasn't at all clear that he regarded it as obvious that you could give masses. But in any event, it seems that Schwinger's reaction was enough to have made Jeffrey Goldstone think, well, I'll, I won't do that. I'll focus on the big problem, which was this... Goldstone boson, but that's a total irony, you know, if, if true, that Goldstone already had the solution to his own problem, but was talked out of it. Mm -hmm. So the mass mechanism has a long convoluted history. I mean, the Toft independently rediscovered it when he was doing his work in 71. The boson itself, and I challenge anybody to find a massive scalar boson in any paper other than the one of Higgs, the fact that Higgs may have done it by accident or luck. Well, how can we ever know? But he did. <laughs> That's right. the, 
and of course goldstone is still very much alive thank yes and uh and could have been considered yeah i feel like he is this you know he is kind of elusive in the sense that is really this this problem now of course you know it was the massless issue and then and then actually getting the mass mechanism to work out is really the key insight so but you know they've given Nobel prizes to wrong ideas like uh like uh bohr atom model and stuff like that so it could be a greatest hits award uh you know so to speak but let's pivot away from that because i i know we only have a few more minutes left and i want to cover a couple of more issues one in the in the field of uh, cosmology, which you no spoilers uh, involve, but we we sort of dovetail to it at the end of the book. Uh, of course, my colleagues and I are looking for you know, potential signatures of primordial gravitational radiation, which would be potentially caused by the uh, a, a so-called scalar uh, scalar uh, field called not a boson, but a scalar field called the inflaton. Uh, that would be present in the early universe coupling to gravity. Um, in the book, you talk about that, and that would be the CMB uh, imprint of so-called primordial B modes, although they're all alternative models that predict no B modes and that there is no singularity and there is no Big Bang. Uh, the way we think about it, it's more of a cyclic model. That's for another time. But looking at uh, the analogies between the Higgs boson and the inflaton, can you talk a little bit about uh, how the future what the future of the higgs looks like and not only experimentally because as i understand it you know the 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 lhc is is still running they're gearing up for a new higher luminosity run 13 tev um there's no real targets right i mean you you say there is a natural target it's the planck scale <laughs> uh good luck finding that uh we've had james beecham and we've had on other uh experimentalists from lhc on uh, atlas and my colleagues here at cms at uc san diego but in reality, you know, there is no natural target, just like there may not be a natural target for inflation either. How should we handle this potential existential crisis where you don't have a good target to go to, as you did with the Higgs, but uh, now kind of just the refrain that I hear is bigger is always better. Uh, what do you well, make of such claims? Well, I, I think in the, I mean, certainly it's correct that um, I, I, I say that for 50 years, um, we have had a fairly clear idea of where we were trying to get to and how far we had to go to get there. And in fact, over the last uh, 30 years, it was becoming very clear that although we thought we were going to have to have a one TeV energy scale to get to whatever the solution to electroweak symmetry breaking is, uh, we've, we honed in on 110 GeV and indeed found the Higgs at 125. Um, but now we don't have any clear marker like that. Um, there is, however, one immediate question, I think, which is important, which is a big strategic one. I mean, we've found the Higgs boson, so what? Um, I mean, this is not just collecting postage stamps. If you stop now, it's collecting postage stamps. This is a very <laughs> valuable postage stamp, but, but you know, that wasn't what it is really about. Um, I mean, an analogy that I draw is that uh, just like fish need water, so we need the Higgs field. Um, we don't know what it is. We know that it has no sense of direction or in quantum sense has is a scalar. Um, we know how much energy it takes to make it bubble up uh, into to reveal itself as, as bosons. Uh, but that's about it. Um, right. Now, what we really want to understand is how is it that the Higgs bosons condense to make this field? Yeah. And the analogy is it's as if some very bright fish have discovered 
a molecule of H2O, which has proved that indeed they do live in water. Um, but what they really want to understand is how the oceans are formed. And that is like us. I mean, really, we, we really want to understand what this Higgs field is, because that is what determines everything we now know. And until we understand what it is, it'd be hard to know how the determination takes place. So I think the first step to that would be, and this is what I think the new high intensity experiments at DLHC will hopefully be doing in the next few years, to be able to produce two Higgs bosons in a single collision. And if you're lucky enough that those two bosons interact with each other before you detect everything, we'll start getting the first information about how Higgs bosons mutually interact and get the first idea of how this Higgs field is formed. Um, that's the theory side. Well, that's the experimental side. You mentioned the inflaton and the early inflation. I mean, I'm now getting outside my pay grade, but I have this sort of gut feeling if that's the right metaphor in this day, <laughs> I'm not into grand unified <laughs> theories, um, but the, the other sort of gut feeling um, that isn't it remarkable that we found the Higgs boson? Actually, it seems to be so simple. I mean, the, the simplest model that was written down in 1964 seems to be consistent with everything at the moment, which is something. Mm. There's one other place, at least that I'm aware of in quantum field theory, that scalars are wanted, and that is what you mentioned, the inflaton. So the obvious question is, are the inflaton and Higgs boson one and the same thing? Right. Well, insofar as we, the Higgs boson as we know it at the moment, certainly not, because the inflaton drove the expansion of the whole universe. So it, con it couples very strongly to gravity, and the, the boson of the standard model doesn't do that, unless there is very, mass very massive particles out waiting to be found. And given that the Higgs boson likes to couple to mass, the, the bigger the better, so to speak, the possibility that it might couple through these ultra-massive things bubbling in and out of the vacuum, and that these have big enough mass to couple to gravity, sort of like the way that Frank, uh, that Frank Wilczek pointed to discovering the Higgs, you know, that... that Light particles like gluons or photons can turn into massive top of quarks, which can then couple to the Higgs and produce it. Likewise, if there are supermassive stuff uh, that couples to the Higgs and also couples to gravity, maybe they are one and the same thing. Mm. But, so I really do think the big question in the longer term and how it's going to be done is a question for the future experimentalists and funding agencies and everything yeah. else. <laughs> is I think the idea that the Higgs boson is some sort of placid, structureless thing is, is as naive as, I mean, all of history has been, you look carefully and you start seeing things are made of stuff. Yeah. So the analogy yeah. that I would end up with here is, I think we are in profundity, analogous to where Rutherford was back in 1912 or so, when he had discovered the nucleus at the heart of the atom, but all he was able to tell with his alpha particle probes was that there's a lump of massive charge there. But what it consisted of, he didn't know. Right. And that's where yeah. we are with the Higgs field. Later, they became aware that it's made of protons and neutrons. And if you're a science fiction writer, and then you learned you could do things with that and manipulate the nucleus and such like, I suspect we will find that the Higgs field has some structure. And given that the Higgs field ultimately determines not just mass of fundamental particles, but why they have the particular masses they have, there's got to be something going on there, more than we yet know to get to questions mm. like that. Whether or not you would then be able to manipulate the Higgs field and change stuff, well, 
there's a science fiction story waiting to be written. <laughs> well, speaking of science fiction, we're going to conclude with what I usually call the thrilling three or the fantastic four. Uh, but um, but we only have time for one question, and it's from renowned science fiction, but also science nonfiction author, Sir Arthur C. Clarke, <laughs> who is the namesake of the eponymous Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination here at UC San Diego, which I'm privileged to be the associate director thereof. And also the uh, the very quotable man who gave us the title of this podcast by saying the following. He said, the only way of determining the limits of the possible is to venture beyond them into the impossible. And I like to turn that around, Frank, and I ask all my guests um, the following question, sort of advice to your former self. Frank, if you could go back to 20-year-old, 30-year-old Frank and give him one word of advice to give him the courage to go into the impossible, what would it be? Um, the same advice I'll give to the students right here and now that are coming through their PhDs, that there's going to be a time in the future when the textbooks will be filled with stuff that is yet to be discovered. Somebody has to discover it. Why not you? <laughs> Why not you? And Frank, uh, I want to be uh, uh, the first to extend uh, the congratulations on another phenomenal book. Uh, you're such a good writer, and um, and in your books have been uh, have been inspirational to incredible numbers of of scientists and non scientists alike. You're also a renowned scientist, and I want to thank you for sharing that gift with the public. I have a controversial belief that we scientists have a moral obligation to do outreach to the public. Let's not get into that now. I, I don't want to saddle you with my own particular peccadillo uh, problems, but I want to thank you uh, for this wonderful book called Elusive, uh, which is how uh, the mystery of missing mass or how matter gets mass uh, is, uh, is such a delightful story, both for the lay audience, but also for we, my fellow physicists who, who uh, love to devour uh, in some detail, maybe not in our particular field, but this is uh, as a gift to physicists and to the lay audience alike. Frank, congratulations and thank you for going into the impossible with me. And folks, stay tuned because I have the inaugural Higgs chair professor. Uh, Professor Neil Turok, friend of the show, he is coming on soon, and he has the eponymous name of uh, of Sir Peter Higgs from Edinburgh University. So look for that episode coming soon. We're talking about his models of the universe and the astonishing simplicity of all things. But for now, Frank, thank you so much for joining us. Enjoy the rest of your evening, and I hope we can talk again soon. And thank you very much uh, for talking to me in Oxford to you in California by the great invention Tim Berners-Lee at CERN came up with. <laughs> That's right. That's right. right. Thank you Bye, so thank much. You. Bye, Frank. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Well, that's a wrap. It was an amazing opportunity for me to chat with Frank and explore some lagging not lagging, nagging questions I've always had about that particular prize and more prizes. So I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope that you too, in the future, when I post calls for questions and feedback, that you'll take advantage of it. You'll join me on Twitter, Dr. Brian Keating, YouTube, Dr. Brian Keating, Instagram, same handle, and ask questions in the community tab on YouTube. And don't forget to subscribe. And don't forget to subscribe to my mailing list where I'm giving away uh, meteorite dust samples, cosmic dust samples. You can subscribe at briankeating.com slash list. 
and I hope that you will uh, you will subscribe. And if you are listening on a podcast player, you can leave a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. It's called. When you subscribe, you can also leave a little constellation of five stars. Um, uh, that uh, will really boost the show. We're trying to get to 500 ratings this year. Hope with your help we can do it. We're already over 400 as we speak. And if you do, I read every single one. So you'll hear one right now from Charles Wesley. Pretty good, great podcast. Not pretty good, pretty great. Definitely one of my go-tos when I want to pretend I understand the significance of the observed mass anomaly of the W boson. Maybe a fifth force, who knows? Or maybe someone does. So uh, leave a review. You can do that exclusively on Apple Podcasts. But on Spotify, Audible, and overcast elsewhere you can leave a review on asterism hopefully it will merit five stars don't forget to uh, join the mailing list if you want to enter to win if you live in the u.s some free space dust and for now bidding you an impossibly good week until we meet again brian keating your fearful cosmic host posing and hopefully answering some of your cosmic conundrums on the into the impossible podcast bye bye